Well, good morning. How you guys doing? Good, good. Hey, uh, my name is Brad Zook. If you don't know me, I am the director of high school ministry here at the church. And uh, it's exciting. It's a privilege for me to be up here with you this morning. Um, what a gorgeous weekend, right? I mean, man, this is July. This is the end of July. It's going to be August this week. And it was in the 50s, I believe. Yesterday morning and this morning. You know, Vera Augustuson this morning told me, she said, you know, this is what it's like in San Diego. We took high schoolers to San Diego earlier this summer. And I go, yeah, it really is kind of like San Diego. She goes, yeah, but if we had this all year round, the cost of living would go up and everyone would kind of flock to Omaha. And so she says, maybe that's a bad thing. So, um, but seriously, yeah, I don't normally enjoy mowing the lawn in July in Omaha because uh, it's unreasonably hot. But yesterday afternoon, it was quite nice to mow the lawn. Anyway, uh, let's pray before we jump in and we'll dive into God's word together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, holy, holy, holy are you. God, remind us of that this morning. God, wake us up, make us alert and attentive. God, wake us up to the beauty of who you are, God, of what you're doing in this world. God, wake us up to your holiness. God, wake us up to your grace and your love. But God, this morning, we pray that you would speak to us here in this place. God, as we dive into your word, God, we pray to worship you through your word. God, not just in the songs this morning, but as we listen to your word. And God, as Hebrews tells us, your word is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. God, penetrating even to the point of joint and marrow, soul and spirit. And so God, would you penetrate our hearts this morning? Would you speak to us? God, we're desperate for you. We need you. We need a word from you. God, wake us up and may we hear from you this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. And turn with me to the book of Galatians, New Testament book of Galatians, an epistle, a letter of Paul, uh, chapter 2, and starting at verse 11. I'm just going to dive right into the text this morning I'm going to be talking about. If you don't have a Bible, that's fine. The text will be on the screens here. We are in week four of this series we've been in called Life Verse, in which whoever is speaking uh, gets to speak on their life verse. And so this morning, that's what you're going to hear from me, and, and I'm excited to, to talk to you about it. So, Galatians chapter 2, starting at verse 11. And this is Paul writing here. He writes this. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Verse 15, we who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. 
For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. So what do we have here? We have here a story of the story of how Peter and Paul had a confrontation over Peter's behavior. I mean, think about this for a second. Peter wrote books of the New Testament. Peter, one of the, I mean, Peter. Jesus said, Peter, upon this rock, you know, you will build my church. But what do we have here? We have Peter disobeying, don't we? Isn't it weird, this conversation? Have you read this before? This is, this is phenomenal. But really, the confrontation from Paul here, to a large degree, was over the nature of the gospel, over the essence of the gospel, over the essence of the Christian faith, over what a Christian really is. That's what the gospel is all about, what a Christian really is. Now, uh, I read this entire section this morning because I wanted you to see the context of why Paul says what he says here. But this morning, I really want to focus primarily, and I'm going to focus primarily on the last paragraph of this chapter, chapter 2, the last five verses, verses 17 through 21, and with a special emphasis on verse 20, which is my life verse, and uh, it's just an incredibly, an incredibly powerful verse this morning. So here we have the final words that Peter heard from the lips of Paul, or at least at, by the end, at least it's a summary of what Peter heard from the lips of Paul as a part of that confrontation, and this is an incredibly powerful and life-shaping passage of Scripture. So I'm excited to speak to you about it this morning. Maybe you've encountered this before, but for me, real quick, I just want to tell you, this is my background with this passage. I first discovered this passage in Galatians 2 early in my college years. Now, I'm a small-town kid. I grew up in a small-town Illinois, uh, moved to an even smaller town in Kansas, and uh, I wanted to escape to the big city, right? So come to Omaha. I didn't want to escape, but I, I wanted to be a youth pastor, and so I came to Omaha to go to Grace University, down in, almost downtown on 9th Street. And so I'm at Grace, and right away, this is 2001, 2002, I'm a freshman. Right away, I got plugged in here at Brookside, and it was awesome. Jeff Dart was um, newly hired that summer, and so Jeff was leading tribe at the time. And so right off the bat, I was, um, I was a, a tribe leader. Our tribe was our middle school ministry. And I was a small group leader for tribe among some of my friends. And I think it was my freshman year, maybe. It might have been my sophomore year. But I remember Jeff gave us adult leaders um, he wanted us to memorize scripture. And so he gave us these little cards so that we could memorize scripture. And you say, you know, those little cards, and there's a verse on each one. You kind of go through them. And he didn't give us a lot, but I remember this verse, Galatians 2.20, was one of those cards. And I would go down to this little tiny park by grace. And um, I wasn't all that into memorizing scripture. I didn't go to Awana growing up. But I wanted to memorize some of these verses. And at that park, I remember walking around the playground, just having this verse, reciting it to myself over and over again. And it was so shaping for me. Um, my identity in Christ, who I was in Christ. I didn't really live for Christ all that well in high school, and I'm at Grace at a Bible college, and it was awesome. So that's kind of my background. This text, uh, this is a great text this morning. So we're going to dive in, all right? So when we look at this, first of all, here's the question. Just what, what's Paul talking about here? What's Paul talking about? I mentioned that this is a confrontation. That's, a, that's fine. That's a given. But what is he talking about here? I think he's answering this question. What is the foundation of a Christian's identity? What's the foundation of a Christian's identity? 
And I would say he's talking about even more specific, he's talking about the gospel identity. What's, what's the gospel identity? That's what we're talking about this morning. And so I'm going to cover three headings this morning. Three headings, very simply. First of all, what defines the gospel identity? Secondly, what describes the gospel identity? And thirdly, what delivers the gospel identity? So what defines it, or just what is it? What describes it? And then thirdly, what delivers it? Or how do we get it? All right? So first, what defines the gospel identity? The gospel is about, is about what a Christian is. What is a Christian? I'd like to give you a definition this morning, and a definition that will hopefully be very clarifying and very helpful, but a definition that, if I can say so, almost any other definition, other than the one I'm going to give you later on this morning, is unbalanced, is misleading, is distorted. And I don't say that to be so bold or be so arrogant, and I don't say that to you know, try to critique other people's definition of what a Christian is. I say that because it's here, it's, it's in this passage, we find it in scripture. So let's jump in, look with me, just look with me at verse 17, if you have a Bible, keep it open, look with me at verse 17, and this will be on the screens too, but Paul says this in verse 17, if, while we seek to be justified in Christ, I'm going to stop right there, that we're justified, it's all over this passage, but it's a very, very Christian word, it's a very churchy word, what does that word mean, to be justified, what does it mean to be justified? To justify something doesn't mean to change something. It doesn't mean to change a thing. Rather, it means to change our view of the thing. When you justify something, you don't change it. You try to change the view of it. Most often, maybe a son or daughter would use this to try to get you to see their way. Like, I know, Mom, I was home at 12, 10, and curfew is midnight, but here's what happened. You know. So what if this, for example, here's a better example, students here in the room probably more likely high school students. What if you saw this? What if while you're at school, you in the hallway, you see a fellow student just go up and just slug another guy? I mean, just clock him right in the face. Lay him down, lay him out. I mean, there's no fight. You just, he just popped him, and he's down. And there's crowds around, and other kids saw it, and you saw it, and teachers certainly saw it. I mean, what's going to happen, right? The principal's going to come, and he's going to be like, I mean, you're out of here. You're expelled. You're busted. But what if, as the principal comes up, the kid who threw the, who threw the punch says, no, 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 wait, look in his right front pocket. And as they look in his right front pocket, he has a gun in his pocket, and his hand is on the gun. And the kid says, he told me he was going to shoot somebody. See, the kid says, yeah, I slugged him. We all saw that. I slugged him. But he was he was about to shoot somebody. He justified his behavior very well, didn't he? He justified his behavior, his behavior very well. He didn't change his behavior. He's like, no, I, I punched the guy. But it was, he changed the view of the behavior. To justify something is to change not the behavior, but to change how it's perceived, how it's treated, how it's viewed. And here's why this matters. Because at the essence of being a Christian is this word Justification. To become a Christian is to be justified. I mean, you become a Christian when you are justified. It doesn't mean necessarily that you stop being bad. See, because very often, I mean, what does it mean to be a Christian? Very, very often, it's typical to hear someone say, you become a Christian when you promise to be really, really good. Or when you promise to start getting your act together. Or when you promise to start really living for Christ. Or they maybe say, you become a Christian when you start believing certain facts about Jesus, about who he is, or if you accept his power into your life. 
Now listen, all those things are involved, right? They are involved. They need to be involved. But are they the essence? Are those things the foundation? See, to become a Christian is not to become good. Becoming good is the result of becoming a Christian. It's not the essence of becoming a Christian. When you become a Christian, you're justified. You become justified. It doesn't mean you stop being bad. Hopefully you stop wanting to be bad. But it does not mean you will no longer sin, does it? It doesn't mean your life becomes perfect. And we all know this by practice. What it means is your sins can no longer bring you into condemnation, right? Your sins no longer condemn you before a holy God. It means that you're accepted. It means that you're righteous in God's sight. Now, there's another word, right? There's another very churchy word. Look with me. Skip down to the last verse. Look at verse 21. I'll come back to the rest. But in verse 21, Paul writes, uh, he writes, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. See, how are we justified? We're justified because of this righteousness thing. Well, how does righteousness work? I mean, what Paul's saying right here, righteousness, which means an acceptable, an acceptable record. Righteousness means we're now viewed rightly before God. We have a right standing before God. But so, okay, how is that true? What, what, I mean, what does that mean for us? What Paul's saying here, he says, if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ dying, that was futile, that was worthless. But that's not how it works. He says, but righteousness can't be gained through the law. It's gained through Christ. So what this verse is saying is saying, it's not something you work for, it's received. It's received because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Jesus died, and when I put my faith and trust in him, my sinful record is transferred to him. Now, a lot of times we tend to stop there. We, we kind of say that's, that's it. That's the main thing. We get forgiveness from sins, but that's it. And we kind of get a clean slate. We get a clean record. We get to start over again. But then we got to try really, really hard. But no, 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 that's not it. See, when I become a Christian, not only is my sinful record passed over to Jesus, but Jesus' righteousness is transferred to me. Nobody's put it better than uh, Martin Luther himself. And uh, I, I didn't start reading Martin Luther until maybe three or four years ago. I, this is the guy, you know, who started the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century or so, you know. But Martin Luther has a great commentary on the book of Galatians. And this is what Martin Luther writes. He writes this, listen. Christian right- righteousness, which God through Christ imputes to us without our works, this righteousness he says, is passive righteousness, and all others are active. If I tried to fulfill the law myself, I couldn't trust in what I've accomplished myself, neither could it stand up to the judgment of God. I don't work for it, but rather receive it from God. Therefore, it seems good to me to call this Christian righteousness passive righteousness. He says, I don't produce it, I receive it. I don't work to get it, it's a gift given to me. Okay, I go, Okay, but now what does that mean? We're justified, we have this righteousness, but let's keep going. Look back with me at verse 17 real quick. I'm going I'm to point out just a few more words here. Paul writes, if while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners. Now let's just stop right there again. Who's the we here? Who's the we? Is Paul just, is he kind of speaking generally here? Is he kind of referring to everyone out there? You know, is, is he using the editorial we? 
If he was using the editorial we, it might mean he, that he would be saying, if well we seek to be saved. But he's not using the editorial we, and we know that because all throughout this whole passage, he uses we referring to himself and Paul. I mean, again, I remind you, he's giving a summary here of the words that he spoke back to Paul. And so all throughout, I mean, in verse 15, we who are Jews by birth and not Gentiles, Verse 16, so that we too have put, our, put on the faith of Jesus. So he's not talking about the editorial we. He's, he's saying, we already are Christian. I mean, we are justified, Peter and Paul. I'm, I'm talking to you. And so at the very least, we know he's talking about Christians here. So what's he trying to say? What does he say by this verse? We, we're justified in Christ, and yet it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners. He's saying we're justified, and yet we still sin. And he says it as a given. He says it right there. He says, in ourselves, we're sinners. In the sight of God, we're justified, we're accepted, we're perfect. But in ourselves, we still sin. And therefore, what is a Christian? What is our gospel identity? See, for the most part, every other religion, every other philosophy, every other worldview basically says either you're a sinner trying to become righteous or you're righteous and you no longer sin. You maybe used to sin, but you no longer sin. You're either one or the other. And they might say, okay, I'm, I'm 20% righteous and 80% a sinner, or I'm 20% a sinner and 80% righteous. But for the most part, it's one or the other. Every other worldview pretty much says you're either a moral failure or you've reached this state of honored perfection. But here's what a Christian is. See, here's the definition of a Christian that can be absolutely life-shaping for us. This is what I referenced at the beginning. The definition of the gospel identity we find in this passage is this, that a Christian is this, an honored failure, a righteous sinner, a loved and accepted mess. See, there's, there's one place where Paul says this even more clearly, and uh, that's in Romans chapter 4, verse 5. And Jonathan Edwards even, in fact, I read once, Jonathan Edwards once preached a sermon on that verse, on Romans 4, verse 5, he preached a sermon on that verse in April of, 19, of 1735, and it started a revival and converted a third of the town in the next 12 months. And in that verse, Romans 4, verse 5, Paul says this. Paul writes, however, to the one who does not work but who trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. See, so do you see this? It doesn't say if we sort of clean up our life and get our act together and start obeying then God will justify you and make you, make you righteous. No, no. He says, to the one who stops trying and starts trusting in God. God who justifies who? Who does he justify? The righteous, kind of the, the moral, the really good person out there. The person whose attendance is really impeccable. No. Who justifies the ungodly. See, Paul doesn't say we'll become righteous and perfect. Not in this life. He says that's how God views us. And we cannot forget that. But we will not be perfect until we're in heaven. So when you become a Christian, see, some of us wrestle with this, don't we? You go, yeah, that does make sense. Because when I became a Christian, I thought that my life was going to be perfect. Or it would go a lot better than it has been going. I didn't think I would keep on sinning like I do. But I keep struggling with that temptation. That's, quite honestly, that's why some people maybe are like, this doesn't work for me. Because they probably haven't rightly understood this. See, Paul never says you'll become righteous in this life. He says our faith is credited to us as righteousness. And get this, our, this Christian identity is absolutely unique. It is absolutely unlike 
what any other philosophy or worldview says. We're justified and yet ungodly. You're an honored failure. You're a righteous sinner. Now, again, Martin Luther puts this so well. Martin Luther coined this Latin phrase. Maybe you've heard this before. Martin Luther says this. In Latin, it's this. We are simul justus et peccator. Simul justus et peccator. Simultaneously righteous and sinful. We're both righteous and sinful. It's not either or. It's not one or the other. It's not 80-20. We're both righteous and sinful. Now, here are the implications of this. And here's what I want us to understand as I wrap up the first point. As we begin to grasp this, we begin to see that an identity like this is completely unique. That an identity like this makes us utterly different than every irreligious person, but also utterly different than every just merely religious person. And it makes us utterly different than the person we used to be. See, if I'm a righteous sinner, I'm both humble and yet confident. Most of the time what we have out here and, and the sides we fall into ourselves is kind of a, maybe a false humility and then it turns into kind of self-loathing and woe is me and I'm such an idiot and I just keep screwing up. Or you maybe have the person that's fairly prideful, arrogant, self-righteous. They're confident, but they're not humble. But see, in this, this is what makes this identity absolutely unique. We are both humbled and confident. I'm still a sinner myself. I can't look down on somebody else out there on the street because I'm still a sinner myself. And yet Jesus, when he looks at me, I have the righteousness of Christ. And so I can't beat myself up either. I can have true confidence in who I am. So to understand this is to understand what it means to be a Christian. We are simultaneously righteous and sinful. So that's the first point. Now secondly, what describes this gospel identity? What describes it? Now, uh, I'm going to go into a little more here of maybe what it's not. You know how sometimes you can kind of talk about how if you talk about what something isn't, it can give some clarity to what it is. And so we're going to go into that a little bit. Um, as we look back in the passage, I mean, do you remember this? In verse 14, and I know I said I wasn't going to kind of go back up into the passage all that much. But in verse 14, Paul is confronting Peter here, you know, about withdrawing from the Gentiles considering them unclean, sort of going back on what he, he knew was right post-Christ, after Christ had come. And uh, here's the thing. Um, Paul goes to Peter, and in verse 14, he doesn't say to Peter, Peter, you broke the no racism rule. And dog on it, Peter, that's a rule. I mean, Jesus made this very clear. It's one of the, you don't discriminate, okay? He made it very clear that the Gentiles are as fine as Jewish people, and you're being a racist, or not, you know, whatever that would be. You broke the no racism rule. Now, Peter did break the no racism rule, didn't he? But that's not what Paul says. And I think that that's very significant. In fact, as a side note here, I think this is a wonderful example in verse 14 of how a Christian could confront a fellow Christian brother in a loving way. Because what does he say to him? Look at verse 14. What Paul basically says is, Peter, you're not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. You're not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Now, what does that mean? See, Paul essentially uses this metaphor of a line here. If the gospel is staying on a line, what do we have to be careful of? You know, the ESV says they weren't keeping in step with the gospel. But if it's a step or in line, what do we have to worry about? 
Now, I don't know if any of you saw this, but about a month ago, this uh, tightrope walker who's done some amazing things, his name is Nick Walenda, walked across the Grand Canyon on a tightrope with no safety net, no safety harness, no, no net, no anything. Have, did you see this? It was on the Discovery Channel, and I missed it. But this was on June 24th. The guy walks across the Grand Canyon. It was much more windy than he thought it would be. He comes from a long line of tightrope walkers. And uh, I believe the guy's even a Christian. But for him, now here's, we have a picture, I think. A year or two ago, I remember coming home and flipping on the TV, and the, the guy's walking across Niagara Falls. Like, what? I'm a, I was like, honey, come look at this. This guy is walking across Niagara Falls on a tightrope, on a, like a two-inch cable. And uh, what's funny, I mean, there was mist kind of going up all over him. You can find this guy all over. You can find uh, video footage of it. He had a camera, like, strapped to his chest, at least on the, the Grand Canyon one. Um, this is hilarious. He, they, he didn't want to have, like, a safety cable, uh, this thing attached to him when he walked across Niagara Falls either, but they, like, made him do it, which makes sense because I was watching it. It was on national. It was on, like, a network station, you know. I'm sure somebody's like, all right, bro, you're doing this. It's on, it's on network television. You got a safety cable. If you fall off and the whole nation's watching, that'd be horrible. Um, maybe that's why they put it on the Discovery Channel this second time around. Um, but this is absolutely amazing. And the guy, I think he's a Christian. He's praying pretty consistently as he walks across. Jesus, I mean, cool guy. But here's the thing. When Nick Walenda, when it comes to walking a line, what do you have to worry about? I mean, what's the only fear? What's the only thing that could happen to him? Falling, right? Falling off to the right or to the left. Tertullian, who was one of the early church fathers, once said this. Tertullian said, just as Jesus Christ was crucified between two thieves, so this gospel of justification by faith is ever crucified between two opposite errors. And so we have to be careful as we live as Christians, we don't fall off the line of the gospel, so to speak, to the right or to the left. See, most people tend to think there's only two ways to live. And this is what I'm getting at. Most people think there's only two ways to live, the irreligious way or the religious way. They think there's only two ways. You're either godless and secular or you're kind of the religious type. But see, most often when it comes to understanding the gospel of Christianity, even for most of us when we hear that phrase, we just think that that means becoming the religious type. Understanding the gospel is just becoming the religious type. But that can't be what it means because Paul's metaphor here of, of a line, if the gospel is a line, that, that still means there's two opposite errors, which actually means there's three ways to live. If the gospel is the line, the two errors on the right or the left would be this. The more maybe theological terms for these, I guess, I don't know if this is theological, but would be this, licentiousness and legalism. Licentiousness and legalism. Licentiousness basically means what it sounds like. Licentiousness basically means that we have a license to live however we want. This person typically is the more irreligious type, but they don't have to be. They could be very good about church attendance. They could have a misunderstanding about what grace is. But typically, they have a license. I can do whatever I want, lawless, immoral. And on the other side, legalism is the opposite. Legalism says it's all about strictly obeying the law. In fact, you have to obey the law. You must. If God's going to love you, you have to obey the law. I mean, legalism, think of it like this, literally means lawism. Got that? Now, let me expound on these two a little bit more. On the right, legalism is the view that says, I'm basically a sinner trying to be righteous, 
and God is holy, and he's sort of loving. And I understand he's loving because I'm told, of, you know, obviously he's loving, and I have to believe what the Bible says. But see, the holiness of God is real, and the grace of God is kind of a weak concept. But I'm really a sinner trying to be righteous. That's, that's how the legalist operates. And these are the kind of people typically that say, um, I'm going to get to God by being very, very good, and by obeying the golden rule, and by obeying the Ten Commandments, my church attendance is impeccable. I volunteer here and there in every ministry. I'm always at the, I'm very, very good. And so, in fact, God has to love and accept me because I've been keeping up my end of the deal. All right? God, you have to love and accept me because I'm a good person. That's the legalist. But then on the left, we have the more irreligious person, the licentious person. And the licentious person basically says, I'm lovable. I mean, I'm acceptable. I, I'm not a sinner. <laughs> I don't even believe in sin. What does that even mean? I'm fine. Like, I'm a pretty good person. I'm, I've never killed anyone. You know, they always say that. It's like, well, sure, I've lied. I've never killed anybody. And God, if there is a God, God just loves and accepts everyone. You know, God just loves and accepts everyone as they are. And so everyone just kind of has to sort of decide what's right and wrong for them. That's the licentious person. Here's the legalist. Here's the licentious person. Here's the more religious person. Here's the, typically the, the more irreligious person. And here's what we have. The legalist says, I'm basically sinful, trying to become righteous. And the licentious person says, I'm basically acceptable, but every so often, eh, to err is human. I don't call them sins. I make mistakes. Sure, everyone makes mistakes, but I'm basically acceptable. But the Bible says if you go in either direction, and we all go in either in one direction or the other at some point. I know I do. In fact, I do it quite often. The Bible says if you go in either direction, you miss the gospel. You step off the line of the truth of the gospel. See, here's what's very ironic. When, when Tertullian said the gospel's crucified, here's what it means. First of all, there's people over here that get really, really nervous when they hear the gospel because it sounds too easy. The, the more legalistic, moralistic type, they go, no, that, that sounds like license to me. That just sounds a little bit too gracious and accepting. And people on this side get nervous of the go- uh, when they hear the gospel because it sounds too demanding, too exclusive, you know, too moralistic. We all know people on both sides. You know, on this side, you want to come to church with, you're afraid of what they might say or you're afraid of what they might think. See, the, the ironic thing is, Moralists and legalists will always hear the gospel as being too licentious, and licentious people will always hear the gospel as being too legalistic, too moralistic. And what's crazy is when people hear the gospel and think that, that's actually one of the best ways you know that you're actually getting close to being in line with the truth, truth of the gospel. Now, I want to mention, too, the gospel is not some, some sort of halfway compromise between the two, okay? The gospel is the third way altogether. It's not this or this. See, it's only as we see the law of God and the love of God together on the cross when Jesus died in our place for our sins, it's only there that our hearts begin to melt. And it's only there that we start to see, ah, that's what the gospel really is. See, because on the one hand, legalists tend to say, um, they emphasize God's truth, but they're kind of like, I don't know about God's grace. But see, listen to this, truth without grace isn't really truth, is it? And over here they say, oh yeah, God's gracious, but I don't really know about God's holiness and the wrath of God, and God certainly would never send anybody to hell. But whoa, 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 graciousness without truth isn't really being gracious either. And I say to this person over here, I say, 
what did it cost your God to love you? And they go, nothing. It didn't cost God anything to love me. He just loves, he just loves and accepts everyone. It, he didn't have to send his son to like die on a cross for my sins. That's ridiculous. That sounds like cosmic child abuse. But here's the comeback. I say, but you know what? What you just said, when you say, in the name of having a more loving God, you actually have a less loving God because it costs my God something. I mean, love costs something. Love always sacrifices. And my God went to the cross for me. God so loved the world that he gave. So the comeback over here is, in the name of a more loving God, you actually have a less loving God. And so both sides we see have these distortions of who God really is. And they miss it. See, only Jesus said in John 1, verse 14 and 17, it says Jesus was full of what? Full of grace and truth. Not one or the other, grace and truth. So if there's no transforming spiritual power in your life and in my life, it's because one thief or the other has stolen it. And we miss the gospel. And I miss it daily, but that's why we've got to keep coming back to what the gospel is. So to have the gospel identity, you must be careful not to fall off to one side or the other. Now finally, point three, what delivers this gospel identity? How do we get it? See, now, when I become a Christian, when I, you know, when I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I mean, what is that? What happens? What happens? Does, does, you know, does that mean that power somehow comes into my life? See, the average person in the average church who, you know, prays the sinner's prayer or has walked an aisle or who has raised a hand after an invitation, who has accepted Jesus into their life, their understanding generally is this. They think, I'm going to live like Jesus. I'm going to try hard to live like Jesus. And I need his power and his, his forgiveness in my life so that I can be like him. And that's fine. But unfortunately, sometimes, sometimes, certainly not all the time, but sometimes what that means is, and all that that means for that person is they move from the more licentious type to the legalistic type. And they default over to here and they actually become Pharisees. And we don't talk about Phariseeism all that much, but so many of us maybe skip right over the gospel and we just become, we just become religious. We just become Pharisees. But our heart's not into it. We just, we've just abandoned this set of uh, way of life and rules and living and to, adopted this side. See, most of the time they haven't understood the gospel. Now, just as a real quick side note, next week, Pastor Steve is going to be preaching again. And uh, come back next week, Pastor Steve's going to kind of build on what he preached on last week and what he preached on the time before that about really practically, kind of maybe even a workshop kind of style, how to share Christ with those around you, with your loved ones, okay? So that really kind of ties into this a little bit and, and I think will be really helpful. So don't miss that next week. Now, look back at the passage with me real quick. Look back at the passage. Galatians 2, if you're wondering about verses 18 and 19, Verse 18 is very, very closely related to verse 19. And if you look at verse 19, well, first of all this, Paul's writing this, right? Now, let me remind you, you all know this, Paul, before he became a Christian, he was Saul, but Paul wasn't the uh, atheistic, kind of really skeptical, irreligious type, was he? Oh, no. Oh, no, no. Saul was very, very religious, wasn't he? He was, he was a Jew, and he was zealous in his Judaism, the Bible tells us. He was a Pharisee. 
And he knew it. He persecuted Christians at the beginning. He was very, very religious. So what we see in verses 18 and 19, check this out, verse 18, Paul writes, if I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I'm a lawbreaker. And in verse 19, he says, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. See, these verses are basically saying here that Paul moved from being a legalist to understanding the gospel. He moved from being a lawist to living for God. He, to getting it, to really getting it. See, he says, if I rebuild what I destroyed, if I go back to that thing I destroyed, to that way of living I abandoned, being justified through the law, it just doesn't work. And if I do that, I've, I prove that I'm a lawbreaker. You can't get justified by obeying the law. And so he's no longer a, legal, a legalist. He understands the gospel. Now, that's fine, but so how does that happen for us? For those we know and love. How does that happen? So finally, verse 20. My life verse. Paul writes, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. I live, the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God. The Son of God who did what? Who loved me and who gave himself for me. It's an absolutely wonderful retelling of the gospel right here. So what we're told in verse 20 is this, that the minute I believe I'm treated as if I've died the same death that Jesus died and as if I've lived the same perfect life that Jesus has lived. Richard Hooker was a, an English Anglican priest, a very influential theologian in the 16th century, and Hooker puts it like this. Here's a quote. It'll be on the screens. He says, he says, Such are we in the sight of God the Father as is the very Son of God himself. Let it be counted as folly or frenzy or fury whatsoever. It's our comfort and our wisdom, and we care for no knowledge in the world but this, that man hath sinned, but God hath suffered. That God has been made himself the sin of man, and man, man now is made the righteousness of God. That is absolutely phenomenal. See, think for a second about how God the Father thinks of the Son. How does God the Father think of Jesus Christ? I mean, maybe think about when Jesus is on this earth. How did God the Father think of Jesus Christ? I mean, think about, think about the love that God has for the Son when he thinks about the brilliance of Jesus' humility and his compassion and his love and his courage and his wisdom. Okay, now get this. When God the Father looks at you, if you're a Christian, he sees you the exact same way. See, God's view of us is this, is I've been crucified with Christ. My, I've been buried with Christ, I was crucified with Christ, and so when God looks at me, he sees Christ. He sees the perfect blood of Christ that covers all of my sin. And so God treats me as if I had died the same death that Christ has died and as if I've lived the same, Christ, the same life that Christ has lived. And that's how you start to live the rest of your life. You have to apply this. So, see, here's the thing. Verse 20, again, real quick. Some people see the first half of verse 20 as the primary thing, and they kind of forget the rest. And so, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And they think, see, that's what it, that's what it means to be a Christian. You don't really do things. You just sort of sit back and let Christ do everything. I don't have to do things. I don't. I don't really have to fight temptation. 
When Christ comes, I just, I just sort of let Christ take away, the, take away the desire. I don't have to. See, this is, this is what it means to be a Christian. I don't have to love hard to love people. I just leave that to Christ. And so, if, you know, Christ will give me the love that I need. And, uh, and hopefully that love will kind of maybe ooze over to other people that are hard to love. But I, I certainly don't need to say anything to them. I would never do that. That would be so awkward. But if God wants people to be saved, I'm sure he'll take care of that. And uh, I just can kind of sit back and things will go well. That's not what verse 20 says at all. I mean, if that was how the verse ended, that, make, that would make sense, but that's not how the verse ends. See, it says, it says, I no longer live, but then the second half of the verse, notice this, the second half of the verse says, but the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. No, 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 no. So hold on, Paul. First you say, I no longer live, and now you say, I live. Well, which is it? And here's the answer. See, the first half of the verse by itself would mean I just sit back and sort of let Christ do everything. And the second half of the verse by itself would mean I just sort of try hard to live a perfect life myself or I just try really hard to obey and do what I'm supposed to do. But when you put them together, when you put them together, this is what it means. It means when God looks at you, he sees an absolute beauty. He sees an absolute beauty. It's not one or the other it's always both and. And when God looks at you, he sees the perfection of Christ. Yes, we still sit in this body. And we have to deal with that. And that changes our identity. But when God looks at us, he sees an absolute beauty. And so from God's point of view, I'm no longer living. But from my point of view, when I live, I no longer just try. I no longer just try to be good. I remember who I am in Christ. I remember my gospel identity. See, that's what this all comes down to. Every day you wake up and you got to remind yourself of your gospel identity. Otherwise, immediately, all these other thoughts will just flood your mind the moment you wake up in the morning. See, this is the only way you're going to deal with the issues of your life. You know, what are you dealing with right now? What, what are the things that you keep coming back to? You say, you say, Brad, I worry too much. I'm a worrier. But I'm going to try hard not to. You say, I'm fearful. I don't, I'm just, the way society is today and our government, I'm fearful. But you know what? I'm going to try hard not to. I'm a bitter person. I'm going to try hard not to. See, that won't be enough. That won't be enough. That would be like Paul saying to Peter, bro, you just broke the no racism rule. You can't do that. See, what you have to say is this. Here's the application question. And if you have a pen, maybe jot this down. It's not hard to memorize, but write this down. What am I using instead of Jesus Christ, as righteousness. What am I using instead of Jesus Christ as righteousness? See, that's why you're worrying. That's why you're afraid. That's why you're bitter. That's why you're selfish, angry. That's why your wife doesn't know what happened to you. You're forgetting that Christ is your righteousness. See, Paul says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, what is it are you, that you're giving yourself to? I mean, what's the real reason? What's at the root of your worry? Is it your image? Is it your reputation? Is it how other people view you? Is it a pleasure that you seek? Is it a certain heartbeat, a little a racing heart that you just want that, you want that thrill? What is it? See, it's this. I now live my life knowing that the most glorious person in the universe thought it worthwhile to die for me. In fact, he was willing to lose the universe instead of losing me when he went to the cross. 
So now if I'm worried, it's because I've forgotten that. And I'm making something else besides Jesus my beauty and my righteousness. If I'm fearful, it's because I've forgotten that. And I'm making something else besides Jesus my beauty, what my heart really longs for. I'm making something else besides Jesus my righteousness. If I'm bitter, it's because I've forgotten that. You see? It's not enough just to say, I don't worry. I shouldn't be greedy. You're actually making something else your functional Savior. Sure, you say, God's my real Savior. Yeah, 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 I'm a Christian. I I worship the real God. No, you don't, see. We worship other stuff. I do. Sure, I say that I love God, but functionally, what I'm really worshiping is my reputation. What I'm really worshiping is, oh, man, I want that thrill again. I want that thing to make my heart race. I want that high. I want that mellow feel, whatever it is. We have functional saviors. That's how you apply this. What is it for you? What is that thing? I don't know if you remember hearing this. Maybe some of you have heard this before. St. Augustine, after he'd become a Christian, uh, you know, Augustine had been sort of a sex addict uh, beforehand, strongly dealt with lust. But after he'd become a Christian, he ran into one of his old girlfriends. And uh, she comes to him. She was on the street or something and said, you know, Augustine, how are you? How are you? You know? And he was cordial, but he says, I'm fine, thank you. You know, how are you? But none of the, you know, none of the flirting, none of the slobbering that she kind of used to remember. And he goes on walking. And after a while, as he walks away, she begins to think, you know, maybe he mistook me for somebody else. And she says, Augustine, it is I. And he turns to her and says, yes, but it is not I. See, what happened there? How did his identity change? See, he discovered that his identity was found in Christ. He found the gospel identity. He said, you're not my righteousness anymore. I used to worship the God of lust. I used to struggle with lust so badly, but you're not my God anymore, lust. I don't need you. I'm not addicted to you anymore because I worship the real God now. See, that's what you got to come back to. God will satisfy you more. God will fulfill your longings more. See, what was he doing? See, he had self-control, but he didn't do it just by saying, no, 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 I don't want to look at you. I, I want you, but I shouldn't, or I'm, I'm, it's against the rules. I can't. No, why? Why do you want that sin so badly? See, Augustine said, he looked at his identity, he said, I'm not the same person anymore. He said, 2 Corinthians 5.17, he said, I'm a new person. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. He said, I'm new. I'm sorry. I wish well on you, but I'm a new person. Only in Jesus is it true that if we get him, he'll satisfy us, and if we lose him, he'll forgive us. See, our, our false saviors, our idols, they're never ultimately going to fulfill us. They're never ultimately going to satisfy And if we fail them, they're never going to forgive us. That bottle's never going to forgive you. That woman on the screen is never going to forgive you. Only Jesus will satisfy. And only Jesus will forgive us if we wrong him. Folks, this morning, that's the gospel identity. And I pray that that's what you seek for yourself, for those around you, those you love, and for this congregation. May we be a people that see that it's not this, And it's not this, but that we walk in the line with the truth 
of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I know that in a room this size, God, something like this lands in hundreds of different places. God, for some of us, this is, this is a brand new concept. We've been walking in the legalistic mindset. We switched from being licentious to being a legalist. God, we need the gospel identity. God, remind us of who we really are. Remind us that I'm both sinful and righteous. God, that I can be humble and yet absolutely confident. And it's not one or the other, God, it's both. God, we need that. It is utterly unique. It is completely different than any other worldview out there. And God, it's attractive. And God, if we become that kind of, uh, that kind of people, God, it's, it's so foreign to anybody we come in contact with. So God, may we spread that to others. May we pass that along. But God, may you do that in us. God, what is that false savior we have? God, it's not just I need to stop worrying. It's not just I need to stop lusting. Why do we lust? It's because we want something else more than we want you. And oh God, may we taste that you satisfy. Oh, you satisfy. But God, we got to preach it to ourselves. God, sometimes it doesn't feel like that. So God, remind us. And God, use each other. Use this community around us right, right now. Our life group, our community group, God, may we speak into each other. And God, this morning too, I thank you that not only do you make much of us, not only did you die for us and give yourself to us, but God, you don't just make much of us. You want to free us to make much of you. And so God, that's how we end this morning. We give praise back to you. We say, God, thank you for making me free. I give you everything. God, with my everything, I need you. I need you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, would you stand real quick? We're going to close with a song, and Chris is here behind me, and he's going to lead us. But uh, let's stand, and let's, uh, let's respond in this way. So.